We're on mute. Oh, my wife does that to me all the time. <laughs> okay, so now we're on. Thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, do I need to repeat all that? Nah. We're looking at Acts chapter 2 anyhow, and verse 1 through 4 uh, just kind of lays the event out for us. And the difference, of course, you got the old covenant, you got the new covenant, which is being, the new covenant is being introduced in Acts chapter 2. And the difference between the old covenant is, in the old covenant, you've got sacrifice offerings, sacrifice lambs all the time. They did it on a daily basis, but really strongly at the Feast of the Passover. You've got uh, lighting candles, you've got incense, you've got feast days, you've got all this churchy stuff. It's all there in the old covenant. And you did all this stuff and you felt really good about yourself because they had rules and you kept the rules kind of, and you know, walk through that. So you got all this churchy stuff. In the new covenant, it all changed. We don't have offer sacrifice lambs anymore. Uh, it's not about feast days anymore. It's not about do you or don't you. It's not about, hey, pray, for, pray before your meals. Did you read a chapter today? Uh, chapter a day keeps the devil away. So it's, you know, it's not about that anymore. It's all about, well, the contrast is this. Old covenant, God was outside. New covenant, God is inside. And that's the difference. Old covenant, God was always outside. Came down on Mount Sinai, scared us half to death. Uh, you know, lightning and thunder and earth shaked. And we said to Moses, hey, we don't want anything to do with this. You go up and talk to him. <laughs> this is scary. So prophets were born. Moses became the first prophet. So all the prophets were born out of that. God did not intend prophets. He had a meeting place at the tabernacle where he was going to meet his people on a daily basis. But hey, we were scared, said, hey, stay away. Just talk to us through a prophet. So Moses came and told us what he had to say. A pillar of fire by night, leading the children of Israel. Cloud by day, God is outside. Even Jesus is God outside. We whacked him on the back, ate his free food, received his miracles, got an ingrown toenail. He took care of the whole thing, but he's outside. Now think, that, think about this. Do you realize what a drastic, overwhelming change it was when God came to be inside? Now he's not inside like he's outside. Come on, you're an intelligent group. I know, you don't look like it, but you are. <laughs> see, you're, he's not inside like he's outside. Although we've done that to him, see. God is outside, and, and what does that mean? He's over there telling me what to do, and who's got to do it? Well, I got to do it. I'm trying to pull this off. Don't look so close. I'm working on it. Come on. God's not done with me yet. See, I'm working on it. I'm trying. I'm a trying Christian. Very trying. God's outside. He's telling me what to do. I have to do it. But see, when he comes to live inside, he's not come inside to be like he was outside. Well, how was he outside? He's over there telling me what to do and I got to do it. Now he's inside telling me what to do and I have to do it. Well, what's the diff? There isn't any. He came inside not to tell me what to do, but to do it. Which means the whole sourcing changed. See, when he was outside, what's sourcing me? Well, I, I got to pull this off. Discipline yourself. Shape, shape up. 
Now he's come to be inside and I don't discipline myself. Really? No discipline in Christianity? No, I didn't say that. I just said, I don't discipline myself. Well, now the last fruit of the Spirit is self-control. That's true. But it's not self-controlling. It's self-being controlled because it's a gift of the Spirit. Woo! Isn't that phenomenal? See, it's a gift of the Spirit that God who's come to live within me is now bringing me under control. And the control that I've never had in my life and... Oh, wanted but never had in my life suddenly begins to take place because I've got a whole new sourcing. So this is not me doing my best. This is Jesus doing his best through me. I'm not trying. He is doing. I'm relaxed. He's living. See, that's a whole new ballgame. That means that Christianity, which has always been impossible. Do you realize that? It's impossible to be Christian. I know. You tried to love everybody? Oh. I've learned to tolerate everybody. But not love. Why? It's impossible. I know. Some people turn me off. I know. Our chemicals don't jive. Right. I don't even like your looks. I know. I can't help it. What if he came and lived within me and I did something I couldn't do? That would be a new sourcing. Have you tried to live above sin? Yeah, you can't do that. I know. You can't always be what you ought to be. I know. You can't always have the right attitude. I know. You need every fifth Sunday just to go get drunk. Strike that. <laughs> you know, we wouldn't do that. But, you know, you, every now and then you just need to explode. Because you can't just keep it all bottled up. You just... What if he came and I thought like he thought and his nature began to permeate my inward being and he began to live within me and I could begin to do the impossible kinds of things. So Christianity, which has always been impossible, now becomes possible because I have a new source. So I live like I can't live and I am what I can't be and, 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 I, and I love like I can't love and, and I think what I can't think and I know what I can't know. And, oh, it's phenomenal. Because it's Pentecost. It's the outside God who's come to live inside. That's this. Now what happened was that in chapter 2, verse 1 through 4, this event took place. And then if you go to verse 5, you'll notice that there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Now these were the original snowbirds. What this means is that these are the... They are. What, what, what this means is they are, they are exiles, Jews of the exile. In other words, there were more Jews, they tell us, living outside of Palestine than were living inside of Palestine at this time. Therefore, all of these Jews who were, out, who were exiled, who had been a product of the exiles of the Old Testament, now were coming to Jerusalem and they came for three or four months and they come, came especially during the feast days and they bought condominiums down by the, down by the temple and, and, they, and they involved themselves. So they had businesses and families there, but they came, so they're the snowbirds. So here they are and there's three to 5,000 of them hanging around and this new thing took place. The new covenant has just been introduced and the spirit and nature of God has just indwelt 120 people. And as they stood around and watched this whole thing 
and watched what was going on. There were 15 different dialects. In fact, if you go down to verse 9, he begins to list them. And I'd read them, but I can't pronounce them. So here's, here, here's 15 of them. And if you get bored with this sermon, you can count them up. But here's 15 of them. And these disciples begin to speak, speak in 15 different dialects that they didn't know. And they're Galileans. Now you understand Galileans. You got down here, Jerusalem. Uh, this is where the temple is. This is where the schools are. This is, uh, this is where the boys that write the fat books live. This is, uh, this is the smart, the, school, the scholarly people watch opera. So they're all down here. See, up here is north where the Galileans. They're, uh, they listen to country and western music. They, uh, they uh, uh, you know, read comic books. They, uh, they're fi- they fight a lot. They're fishermen. They got dirt under their fingernails. Isn't it interesting that all the disciples came from up here? except one and Judas, his name was Judas. He didn't get anybody from the smart boys. You suppose that's why he picked me? <laughs> Let's not get into that. So up here, all of these guys, see this, this is phenomenal. All of these guys, they're up here. They can't even pronounce, they, they can't even speak their own language. They say Sanger instead of singer. There's some Nashville instead of Nashville. See, they, they can't even talk their own language. And suddenly they're speaking in 15 different dialects that they don't know. And this crowd of three to 5,000 looked at this whole thing and said, what on earth is going on with this 120? In fact, look at the question, verse 12. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Now there's a verb left out that isn't translated. It's the verb to be. So it really really, uh, reads, whatever could this mean to be? In other words, this is not a question of, oh, wonder how they did that. This is not, oh, they did a magic trick. How do you do that? It's not that kind of deal. We're not trying to figure out what they were doing. We're trying to figure out what does this mean to my life? How does this affect me? If God is moving in 120 and this is a brand new deal, how does this, what is this, what will this do? what, What does this mean to me? Now, you'll note in verse 14 that Peter, standing up with the 11, raised his voice and said to them. And Peter, moved upon by the Holy Spirit, stood to his feet and said, I'm going to explain it to you. Here's what's going on in 120. I'm going to explain to you what Pentecost is, what's happening in the 120. And you know how he does it? This is going to excite you. It's in the form of a sermon. (laughs) And it's a long one. Woo! Aren't they all? So he preaches this sermon and the whole sermon is an explanation of what's going on in the 120. In other words, we're not going to talk about baptism. No, we're talking about what's going on in 120. Well, I want to talk to you about the theology of church polity. No, we're not talking. We're talking about what's going. Everything he's going to say in this sermon is the direct explanation of what's going on in the 120. No other subject. He starts, as you should with with a sermon, with the text. You'll note it's from Joel in verse 16. But this was what was spoken by the prophet Joel. So from Joel chapter 28 and following, he quotes. In in Acts, it's verse 17 down through verse 21. And he quotes Joel. When he gets done with his text, he begins the body of his sermon. Now note verse 22. He starts the body of his sermon. Now, the significance of this is verse 22, 23, and 24 is one sentence. (sighs) Typical preacher, isn't he? 
See, he puts a conjunction here and a semicolon there and just keeps on trucking. So I want to read this to you. Listen to this. Men of Israel. Now remember, all of this is an explanation of Pentecost. I'm going to explain Pentecost to you. What's going on in 120? Here, here's his explanation. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death whom God raised up having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Now, in sermon construction, that's what we call a proposition, what I call a proposition. Or, if you don't like that, the big idea. Or, if you don't like that, the theme. In other words, you reach out and take the sermon and you squeeze it down to one sentence. So you develop the sentence, you develop the sentence which becomes the basis of the whole sermon. In other words, everything he's going to say in the sermon is traceable back to this one sentence. So if it's not in this one sentence, it isn't going to be in the sermon. If it's in the sermon, it's in this one sentence. Now, the reason we do that is to keep us from going off on rabbit trails. Well, I'd like to say, well, you don't say that. Why? It's not in the one sentence. So this sets the perimeters of the sermon. Now, most people, we wish that we'd just give the one sentence and shut up, but we never do that. So here's the one sentence of the sermon. And remember, this is all an explanation of Pentecost. So are, are we on track? 120 just received the fullness of the Spirit. Three to 5,000 Jews are hanging around saying, what's going on? What does this mean to my life? Peter stands up in a sermon and says, I'll explain it to you. And he begins his sermon like this. Look at verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man, attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst as you yourselves also know. Now, I know you do what I do when, when you do Bible study, and that is you try to find out what the main subject is and the main verb. And in this setting of three verse, one sentence, three verses, it's really confusing. Really confusing. Because there's a lot of clauses and a lot of subordinate ver verbs and subjects. But when you weed your way through it, what you find out is that the subject, the main subject of this entire presentation in verse 22, 23, and 24 is at the end of verse 22 in my translation. And it's you yourselves. It's what is called a reflective pronoun. In other words, it's the pronoun of the selves. So it's not just you, it's yourself it's not just her, it's herself. In other words, it's a beefed up focus version of the focus on the person. So he's looking at this crowd and he's not just talking about you, he's talking about you yourself. Which is a double focus and a double emphasis. So he's looking at this crowd and saying, hey, I'm talking to you. I'm talking to you. Well, I wish so-and-so were here to hear this. Not talking about them. Well, I wish my next door neighbor, not talking about them. They're not here. I'm talking to you. Look me in the eye. Come on. Hey, I'm talking to you. You, hey, we're eyeball to eyeball, nose to nose on this, and I'm talking to you. That's the emphasis. 
Now, you need to know how, how, how strong that is in the context because these are the very identical Jews who crucified Jesus. Who just 50 days earlier had been, oh, nail him, man, nail him. So he's looking these boys right in the eye and say, hey, I'm talking to you. So they're on the spot. Now, the verb follows that, the main verb. He says, you yourselves also know. So the verb is know. So he's looked this crowd right now and said, hey, I'm talking to you. Not your next door. You, not the guy that didn't. You. I'm talking to you. Wake up back there. I'm talking to you. And I'm going to talk to you about what you already know. Oh, brother. Drug myself out to an 830 service to hear what I've always heard. Not going to give you anything new. Not going to lay out new data, give you new information. I'm going to talk to you about what you already know. Now, the word for know here, there's four Greek words for know. We won't get into that. This one is oida, which is the idea of perceive. For instance, you're explaining something to uh, another person and they say, oh, I see that. That's this word. Sometimes it's translated see, sometimes it's translated know, but it has to do with perception. And it's not just data or information. Two plus two equals four. I got that. That's not what we're dealing with. We're dealing with, oh, I'm understanding this. I'm seeing this. I'm getting this. So he stands before this crowd and says, hey, I'm talking to you. You, look at me. I'm talking to you and I'm going to talk to you about what you already understand, perceive, grasp, got a hold of. Now, what is it that they already understand, grasp, perceive, got a hold of? Well, back up to the beginning. Men of Israel, hear these words. Here's where the sentence starts. Jesus of Nazareth, a man. Ha! Isn't that interesting? He's talking to a group of Jews that just 50 days earlier had crucified Christ. And he says, hey, I'm going to talk to you about what you already know. And what is it you already know? You already know Jesus of Nazareth, a man. See, I wouldn't have done that. I would have started this out. Now, remember, he's explaining Pentecost. What's happening in 120. I would have started out and said, I want to talk to you about Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. I would have started out, Jesus of Nazareth, the Almighty One, the one who had divine blood flowing through his veins. Jesus, the sovereign creator of the entire earth, and he's coming back to get you. See, that's what, that's what I would have done. Would, really? Wouldn't you? And he starts out, I want to talk to you about what you already know, what you already perceive, what you already have as a basis of understanding, and what is it you already know? Jesus of Nazareth, a man. Now, you understand, 
surely, that they, they knew and understood Jesus as a man. Well, sure they did. Come on. They knew Jesus as a man. They whacked him on the back. Come on. Again, they ate his free food. They knew Jesus as a man. They watched him with his hair messed up. Come on. They, they, they got close to him when he had bad breath. Come on. Jesus of Nazareth, the man. They saw him when his feet were dirty. They took him out and nailed him to a tree. See, they understood Jesus, the man. See, they had gone down to Bethlehem, got in the courthouse, looked up his birth certificate. He was born there, man. He had a grandpa. See, they didn't understand Jesus of Nazareth, the the angelic one, Jesus of Nazareth, the mystical one. They didn't understand Jesus of Nazareth, the second member of the Trinity. See, they didn't, that isn't what they understood. They didn't get into that. What did they understand? They understand Jesus of Nazareth, a man. Well, what about this man? attested by God. What's that mean? The Greek word that's translated attested is only used four times in the New Testament. Which is not very often. This is one of them, so there's only three others. We could legitimately look them up. Probably won't take that. But when you look them up, those three times and see how the word is used it has the idea of manifested has the idea of showing for instance in second thessalonians where it's used he talks about the man of sin the antichrist type of guy who stomps into the church house, comes down to the communion table, wipes the candles off, removes the cross, and prompts himself right up on that table and displays, shows himself as God. That's the word. Shows himself. It's a three-ring circus, and in the middle, and, and, and in the middle circle, with the spotlight on, is this, is this display, is this show. The spotlight is on. It's that kind of deal. So it's a display, a manifest, a show, a put in the display window. It's that kind of idea. It also has the idea of proved, and some of your translations are probably saying that, has the idea of proved, which is the idea of I'm displaying someone, I'm displaying something to prove something to you. Now bring that into, the, bring that into this passage and what have you got? You've got this, oh, I'm trying to explain to you what's going on in 120. What is going on in 120? Oh, I want to tell you, it's all, whatever's going on in 120 is the exact identical thing that's been going on in this man that you nailed to a tree. This man that you ate his free food. This man that you whacked on the back. This man that you went down to Bethlehem and dug out his birth certificate. That man, whatever was going on in him, is also going on in 120. And God took this man called Jesus and set him in a display in the middle ring of the three ring circus thing and, and put the spotlight on him and said, I'm going to display I'm going, to, I'm, going to, uh, I'm going to show, I'm going to manifest, I'm going to prove what, is, what uh, my dream is for humanity. You've memorized John 1. 
in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. You know that the Greek word for word there is logos. And when you look at the word logos, it's the, it's the, it's the concept of idea. Idea. In other words, before you build something, you take the idea and put, make a blueprint. And then you build off of the blueprint. What's the blueprint? The idea. Is the blueprint the building? No. Is the blueprint the structure? No. The blueprint is the idea on paper of what the structure will look like. All the measurements, all the details, all the corners are all laid out in the blueprint. You build according to the blueprint. Well, what's the blueprint? Jesus. And in the mind, oh, this is so awesome. In the mind and heart of God, guess what? God had an idea. He had an idea about you. He had an idea about what he wanted for humanity. He had an idea about sons. He had an idea about what he wanted for our lives. He had an idea of what we, we, what we would be like, what kind of relationship we'd have with him, how we'd live, what we'd think, how we'd react, our, our attitudes. He had an idea in his brain. He said, I'm going to try this out. And he made this man called Jesus. Now, you know, he made the first Adam. I got that. He, and Adam blew it big time. So so God came and made another man. Only he said, this time, I'm not going to make a man. I'm going to be that man. And he became the blueprint. What does Christianity require out of me? Well, number one is that you give the evangelist $50. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> See, we think in those terms, don't we? It's not about your money. Well, I got to go to church. Not about, see, that's the old covenant church. It got off of that sacrifice. Oh, oh my, I forgot the prayer before my meal. It's not about that. It's about this idea that God has in his heart. Well, I'm confused about what God wants for my life. What? How could you be? Because he put before you what you already know. A man called Jesus. And everything God expects, everything God wants, everything, all the design, all the heartbeat of God for your life is found in Jesus. So, friend, don't come to me and say, well, you ought to get into this, manly. If you want to be a real Christian, you know what I'm immediately going to do? I'm going to immediately go to Jesus and say, oh, Jesus, let me see that in your life. And if I don't see it in Jesus, I'm not interested. Hey, don't try to put something on me about that isn't in Jesus. If it isn't Jesus, I'm not interested. If it isn't Jesus, I don't want it. If it isn't Jesus, it's not for me. If it isn't Jesus, it might be nice. Help yourself. But I'm not going to get involved. Why? Because it isn't in Jesus. Jesus is everything. The epitome, the idea, the mind, the proof, the display of everything that God wants for your life. Now, what that means is that God has taken everything he wants you to have and he's jammed it into the man called Jesus. Now, that Jesus is in Pentecost is going to come and oh, be in me. 
Christ in you. So everything God wants for me, which is in Jesus, is now in me. So out of me is going to spill everything that God wants, which is in Jesus, which is now in me, which is spilling out of my life. So this is not, oh, I gotta get my life together. This is not, oh, gotta shape up. This is not, oh, I gotta start new habits. This is not, no, this is relax, be filled with him. Allow him to spill into your life. Turn him loose in your living. Let his nature mingle and mix and saturate. Let his mind get into you. Let his inner emotions begin to take over. Get into his heart until you beat with the heart of Jesus, until out of you begins to spill who he is. And the minute Christianity becomes, oh, I got to do this, then you missed it. Why? Because it isn't I got to do this. It's, oh, look what I'm doing. Because he's in me, spilling through me. Because the relationship Jesus had with the Father is not, oh, I got to go preach today. See, Jesus never got up and said, oh, brother, I wonder how many miracles I'll have to do today. These people wear me out. See, Jesus didn't look and say, oh, brother, this crowd. Oh, they want meals, free meals. See, something else was going on in him that he just couldn't, he couldn't, he just couldn't help himself. Why? Because he and the Father were so intimate and there was such a oneness and he was just, and everything God wanted was in Jesus and Jesus was the living proof of this. Think of how, and I know, one day with God is like a thousand years, a thousand years is like one day. I got that concept. But from our perspective, think of how long, how painstaking it took for Jesus to show up. (laughs) Genesis chapter 3 and depending on how you calculate time, wow, help yourself, whatever you want to do, it's a long time. But Genesis chapter 3, man has sinned. God came on, the, came on the scene and gave the first messianic promise. He, the woman, the devil, Adam, they were all there. He turns to the devil, the snake, and says, hey, I just want to tell you what's going to happen here. I'm going to reverse this thing. And if I'd have been there, I'd have said, well, God, just forgive him and let's move on. Well, he couldn't do that. He, he couldn't do that. Why not? Well, because it's not a forgivable thing. Well, doesn't God forgive us of our sins? Yes. But that doesn't change you. See, it doesn't change you. It doesn't change why you sin. It doesn't change your nature that caused you to sin. It doesn't change your will that has a bent to sin. See, it doesn't do any of that. See, why didn't God come and say, oh, you broke the window. Oh, you picked the fruit. Well, I wish you hadn't have done that. I told you not to, but you did it anyhow. Listen, here's what we're going to do. I'll take the fruit, put it back on. Oh, okay, now let's act like it didn't happen. Well, how did that work out? Well, Cain, the offspring of of Adam and Eve, they're killing. Cain's killing his brother. Where'd that come from? 
Well, there, see, something happened when man sinned. Something happened down inside of him. His nature changed. This is all over the scriptures. His nature changed and he's not the same as he was. So God couldn't come and just pat man on the head and say, hey, I'll just, we'll act like it didn't happen. Well, it did happen. And you're not man anymore. You're not the man that I built. You don't fulfill the idea anymore. So God said, I'm, oh, this is so awesome. I'm going to put into, I'm going to put into motion a plan to reverse your nature and bring you back to the idea. And what was the plan? He turned to the devil and said, I just want to warn you. The seed of that woman, seed, singular. And that's interesting as well because women don't have seed. It's men that have seed. So we won't get into that. So that woman, he turned and said, that seed of that woman is going to step on your head, boy. It's going to step on your head. Bruise your head. Step on you. It'll be a death blow. Yeah, you'll bite his heel. Okay. But he's going to step on your head. And that's going to be the end of it. Everything's going to be reversed when he steps on your head. Now, if you were the devil, what would you think? Well, hey, this is no big deal. I don't have to fight off angels. I don't have to fight out hordes of people. I don't have to fight out armies. You know, all I got to do is fix the coming into being of one man. See, this all boils down to one man who's going to step on my head. So the whole Old Testament people is all about what? Oh, I got to keep the one man from coming into being. Just fix the one man. Just don't let the one man be born. Because if he isn't born, then he can't step on my head and I win. It's all about one man. So you got the whole Abraham thing. What's the whole Abraham thing? Hey, go to, get out of the air of the Chaldees, go on a journey, make sacrifice altars, I'll direct you. What's that all about? I'm going to build a nation in through which one man's going to come. So what are you going to do, Mr. Devil? I'm going to mess up Abraham and get that whole thing. And he got the Egypt thing and all that. And oh man, what a mess. And oh, it's all about one, fix the one man. What's the prophet thing? The prophets are all standing. Woo, the one man. Well, hey, get the prophets to backslide. Mess that. That whole thing up. Take the judges and mess them up. Get the Samson to get the Samson to get into Delilah and all that mess. And, and what, what's he all about, brother? Oh. There's a 400 slot, 400 year slot between the Old Testament and the New Testament, where God is totally like absent. He's not, but he's like he's absent. There's no authentic prophet. There's nobody saying, "Thus saith the Lord." I mean, the whole thing is. There's no, there's nothing going on. There's no blessing. There's no presence. There's no nothing. God isn't speaking. And if your wife hadn't talked to you for 400 years, you'd think she's mad, right? So what would the devil think? The devil is hanging back thinking, whoa, God's backed off. I win. I messed this thing up so bad. God said, dump it. So he's having a party, no doubt. Wiping his hands saying, hey, took care of the one man deal. Don't need to worry about anybody stepping on my head. Then all of a sudden, 
Angels are filling the sky. Can you see this? Angels are filling the sky. Shepherds are running around like crazy men saying, oh, whoa, we've seen him. We've seen him. We went down to the manger. Wise guys are coming from, from, the, from the east and say, whoa, we rode on camels for two years to get here. Whoa. And there is a yell going on all across the country about, oh, the one man is here. The one man has just been born. Can you see the devil's face? His mouth drops open. One man. Now, the devil went to work. He got Herod, put his pawn in place, kill the one man while he's a babe. Come on, this is not a hard plot. Kill the one man while he's a babe. So you got all the baby boys in Bethlehem slaughtered in the surrounding districts. Two years of age and under. Slaughtered. The devil must lean back and said, Woo! I win again! And then can you imagine at, 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 at 30 years later or 28 years later or however long, John the Baptist is standing on the bank of the river saying, Hey! Hey! There's the one man! And what would you do if you were the devil? Go after the one man before he gets trained. Go after the one man before he knows anything. Go after the one man and get out, get out. So the wilderness temptation immediately took place in Matthew chapter 4. Slaughter, get undermined. Hey, I'll give you the whole kingdoms of all the world if you'll just worship me. Which would eliminate? You're not going to step on my head if you're worshiping me. The whole plot of the cross is about what? Stop the one man from stepping on my head. And can you imagine the glee as they danced around the cross saying, Woo! We win again! The one man's done. Ain't going to step on, about any, on anybody's head. Look at him. Do you see that everything... God dreams for your life is in the well I really believe in the church man like great 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 but that's not the issue I've served as an evangelist in the church of the Nazarene all my life, preached all these sermons, ministered all these people. That's not the issue. Do you know how much money I've given? Not the issue. See, I want to stick a thermometer down your throat and I want to see how much you burn for the one man. 
I want to know how passionate you are for the one man. I want to know how much of your day is spent in fellowship and intimacy and saturating in the presence of the one man. I want to know about the spirit of the one man indwelling you and flowing in your life. See, I want to know about you burning in your bones. I want to know about you loving. I want to know about the emotional passion. I want to know about the internal desires. I want to know about how wrapped up you are in the... Well, I love to argue theology. I don't give a rip about theology. I want to know about... Everything God wants for your life is in the intimacy and oneness between you and the one man. So the issue of this morning and all this week is going to be how well do you know him? How intimate are you? Does his presence just give you what is it what, what does this do to you? What is he in your life? Well, I believe in the doctrine of... Not interested in the doctrine. I believe in the theology. I'm not interested in the theology. Well, I, 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 I know a lot about... The, I, I, I win all the biblical trivia games. I'm not interested in that. Not interested in that at all. I want to know about your intimacy and your oneness. And, 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 and do you sleep with me at night? Do you have pillow talk with the divine? Are you his bride... Jesus, every lack in my life, every defeat in my living, every confusion in my mind is because I don't know you well enough. We're not tight enough. flirted with you most certainly I've used you because God I'm an needy person so I come to you for this and I come to you for that and I want this and I got to have that and Lord would you intervene here and Lord would you fix that Would you, would you take me to a new level of intimacy and oneness and merger when, where your life is my life and my life is your life and, and you and I are so tight that I breathe you in and I breathe you out. I don't ask your advice. You're not my counselor. You are the thought process of my mind. I don't want to have any thought that you're not. I don't want anything going on in my life that you aren't in the middle of. I want every joke. 
I want you to join me in telling every joke. I want you. I've messed with you. I had guilt and so I did enough to get over my guilt. I was glad to come to you and have peace because you forgave me. Oh, thank you. Whew. But you and me and me and you. Fulfilling the dream in the heart of God. Heads are bowed. You're not going to sit there in that seat today and try to act like you could know him better. That you're as intimate with him as you could get. That there aren't areas of your life oh, where he could flood you and bring about whole dimensions of attitudes and A high school student wouldn't be something if you became so intimate with Jesus that he was, he was your, he, you, were the, you were his flesh in high school and he was living through you. That you didn't live for him. He was actually living through you. Hey, Dad, wouldn't it be something if you loved your wife like Christ loved her? That's so biblical. So, hey, it's about, this is not about right or wrong. This is not good or bad. This is not intimidation. This is invitation. You, you don't have to, hey, sit where you are. It's all okay. But wouldn't it be something for me to come down from this pulpit today, this platform, and get on my knees at an altar and say, Jesus, oh, no flirting, no using, not bringing you my problem. I want to know you. Hey, moments of seeking, just moments of seeking. The proper time our pastor will come and dismiss us and lead us, but just some moments of seeking. Our altar's open. If you can't stand, you can, if you can't kneel, you can stand. If you can't stand, you could sit in the front seat, but do you know him like you could?